Hey, you're so here at George Mason University. I'm here with Shelby Eisen um, from Northern Illinois University to discuss the article titled Another Decade of Qualitative Research in the Journal of Teaching and Physical Education. Um, it was recently published in, and this is going to be obvious, JTPE. Um, you can find the full site, as always, of the article in the show notes. Uh, Shelby, welcome to the podcast and thanks for coming on. Hi, Risto. Thanks for having me today. And of course, thank you to my mentors and co-authors, Kevin Richards, Michael Hemphill, and Thomas Templin for showing me the ropes on this project. Sounds good. So um, can you just give us an, just an overview so everybody's on the same track, what qualitative research is, and kind of talk about the importance and limitations of that type of research? Sure. So... When researchers attempt to answer a question or solve a problem, they need a set of tools. Different tools work for different problems. The two major toolboxes researchers can pull from are quantitative and qualitative, or of course, a mixture of the two. Quantitative tools help us to quantify a phenomenon and qualitative tools help us to describe the qualities of a phenomenon. Quantitative tools output data into numerical findings like descriptive statistics or correlations between variables and qualitative tools, what we're talking about today, output data into words like themes, participant quotes, or images. Um, I like to think of qualitative research as a set of tools that give us a glimpse into human perceptions, thoughts, feelings, and lived experiences. Qualitative, uh, Qualitative research is important because it allows researchers to collect data in participants' natural setting. So, for example, I'm interested in understanding and advancing physical education curricula. So I think one crucial aspect of achieving this vision is to go out into the schools and hear the lived experiences of teachers and their students. While collecting data in a natural environment is a benefit because we are minimizing our influence on the results as researchers, it can also be time demanding. It takes time to build the relationships with the schools, teachers, and students in order to be welcomed into their environment without causing a disturbance. And additionally, in terms of time, if we're using an interview method, for example, it takes time to capture the individual stories, time to transcribe those stories into text, especially if we don't have funding for softwares to transcribe for us, Mm -hmm. and read and reread the transcribed stories to analyze the data. Yeah, so a little bit longer than point and click and enter in data for sure. And I think a lot of us have been there. Um, So why did you choose to review the qualitative research specifically in the Journal of Teaching Physical Education? Yeah, good question. Um, Two main reasons. First, the JTPE is a flagship journal within our field and played a large role in legitimizing qualitative research. Within their mission statement, JTPE states that all methodological approaches are acceptable for publication. And I think it's important to document the methodologies in the JTPE um, in terms of what they're publishing in order to keep a pulse on one of the major journals that played a role in legitimizing qualitative research in the field. Um, Consecutive and sequential reviews could illustrate the changes in publication trends and help to understand how research focus develops or changes over time within a single journal. And then secondly, uh, my path back to PE Um, And the PE world is a windy one. And when I joined the pedagogy lab at the University of Illinois with Kevin Richards, 
I was a bit rusty on all things PE and quite honestly new to the idea of research in PE. So my advisor and co-author, Kevin, um, had the idea of embarking on this 10-year qualitative review of the JTPE, which would serve as a follow-up to his and Dr. Hempel's and Dr. Templin's 10-year review of the previous 10 years. Um, they reviewed the JTPE from 1998 to 2008, and the timing of when I joined the lab sort of worked out perfectly for me to take the lead on the next 10 years, which was 2009 to 2019. Yeah. Uh, and I've, I did a similar, uh, like a similar timing, except when I came in uh, with Steve Silverman at Columbia, I did a 20 year review of research on teaching in PE. And we had like a thousand articles. And one thing it definitely did for me was it threw me into the deep end of the pool. I read so much and understood so much more about research. So I know like, for you in this scenario, you're looking at 10 years of detailed JTP articles about uh, qualitative research. So I'm sure that it definitely got your your wheel spinning and kind of um, got you jump started. So um, awesome, awesome to be in that in that position and and end up with a publication like this. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering about yeah, it was, it was definitely a oh sorry yeah no go ahead. I was just going to say it was definitely a much needed crash course on all things PE and I, I really appreciated it. It really set the foundation for my degree and then now my work as a new faculty member. Do you think that doing a study that was so in-depth in qualitative research pushed you to do more qualitative research or were you already leaning in that way or do you do more quantitative research? Do you think this project changed that at all? Yeah, so I actually started my PhD in the psychophysiology lab at the University of Illinois, working with Dr. Stephen Petrozillo, and so that work was very quantitative lab-based, and I, um, funnily enough, um, switched gears because of a, I took Dr. Richard's qualitative methodology class, and I still remember getting off the phone after my first interview, and I immediately texted Dr. Richards, and I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize research could be this fun, like, I just had a chat with someone is what it felt like, learned a lot from them. It was a, a practicing teacher that I had gotten off the phone with. And it just really opened my eyes to, you know, I I 100% see the need for quantitative and qualitative. And qualitative to me just seems a lot more fun because you get to actually hear the stories, kind of like going to the movies and learning all these new stories, except now you're doing research with it. So mm -hmm. um, going to Dr. Richard's lab in and of itself, switched my gears to qualitative and then doing this study that we're talking about reaffirmed that and then also opened my eyes to, I think there is a gap in, I, at least I found a bit of a decline in mixed methods research. So um, my vision for my career is to really blend those two and I want to continue to do mixed methods research. Yeah. Yeah. And we, uh, we just had a chapter in Kevin, Michael and Paul's book with, uh, Pam Klina and Aaron Santeo about mixed methods. And, and we cited a couple of the papers that you cite in this paper talking about exactly that, that mixed methods has always been this small portion because it's, it's tough to do and it's tough, even like people who do mixed, me mixed methods research, they tend to publish them separately. 
because the qualitative data is so rich that they're like, okay, well, I can get a couple articles out of this and then I'll, you know, share the quantitative papers in this paper or these two papers or presentation. And it's, it's really hard to do a mixed methods, like a really good tight mixed methods paper in, you know, 28 pages on a Word document, double spaced. So yeah. I can definitely see that. Yeah, you said that perfectly. Yeah. So let's let's talk about the methods of it. Can you just tell us about the design of this research? Like, how did you go about looking at 10 years of uh, qualitative research in JTPE? Yeah, so when I saw that there were 377 articles, which sounds small compared to your thousands that you talked about, um, but I was pretty overwhelmed with this idea of data charting in an Excel spreadsheet because I'm super anxious about everything in life. And I'm like, well, what if I accidentally like hit the keyboard and I delete a bunch of data and I can't get it back? So I had the idea to create a Qualtrics survey that walked you through essentially all the components of a data charting tool. So, you know, using this tool just helped me feel more organized and just more natural to capture those key elements. So um, I developed the Qualtrics tool. We screened that with um, some colleagues. And then once it was ready, we all the 377 articles got put into this survey. And essentially, if it said that if the article had a qualitative component, it kicked the article into a series of much more in-depth questions for our data charting. Um, where we pulled out specific things like the methodology, the theories, the participants. Um, so um, if it turned out that the article was theoretical or quantitative, um, we kind of stopped after collecting the author information and um, the abstract. But for the qualitative components, we captured authorship, participants, the theories, data collection methods, analysis and trustworthiness strategies, um, and we selected these categories based on previous reviews. And then we did one extra thing that we wanted to extend our project with, which was try to capture some of the study's findings to bring a more practical element to the project. Yeah, and I, and I love that you have that because in our um, review of uh, PE teaching research for that 20 years, we did that, like the same first part with the Qualtrics, but we didn't summarize the findings because to me it looked like because we did a systematic review and like to me it was just so overwhelming to think about categorizing a thousand articles in uh, in like categories and summarizing some of them, whereas coding took enough time and and I think that that's why like you should never do a research review of twenty years of that that's that big i mean 377 articles that you're looking at and you had you know over 100 that you actually like looked at specifically that's still so much to like categorize and analyze and read and uh review so i think people listening to this i think and you know the the papers before that had hundreds and hundreds of articles that are coded it takes a lot of time and I, I think I saw in that article you said something like 150 hours between the three of you just entering that information. It's just a, a mountain of work. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it definitely was a huge undertaking. Yeah, not for the faint of heart. So let, let's move into the kind of results <laughs> section. Um, overall, what direction um, does your research say that 
JTP has been kind of moving towards? Like, what are what are the overall trends that uh, you uncovered in this uh, review research? Yeah, so from 2009 to 2019, um, out of the 377 articles published, 158 of them were qualitative research. And then 118 studies were solely qualitative, and then 40 were mixed methods. 167 were quantitative, and 52 were theoretical. So overall, about 42% of articles included qualitative methods, whether it be purely qualitative or, or mixed. Um, when comparing this data with the previous 10-year uh, review, the biggest trend that caught my eye was the sheer volume increase of articles published by the JTPE. We went from 209 published in the previous decade to 377 in our decade. And at first glance, you might think that qualitative research is growing since 110 articles included qual in the previous decade and our decade, our decade identified 158. But when you look at this holistically, qual research actually declined by about 11% given the volume increase in, in published articles. So I thought it was interesting that mixed methods research, like we talked about earlier, has almost cut in half over our review compared to the former. And then even just within our 10-year review, we saw a sharp increase in the number of articles published per year. So in 2009, JTPE published 24 articles, and in two thousand, and then by 2019, um, they published 45. Wow. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's, I think, across a lot of different journals, a lot of different fields, there's just such a volume. And I think it's because we're expected to do a lot more um, in publishing. But those are those are interesting stats for sure. And I'm wondering if you can discuss the different reasons, the implications and suggestions that you discussed in your study uh, related first, like to the descriptive results. Okay. Um, I'll kind of bracket this out into a couple categories. So um, for research design specifically, the majority of qualitative articles actually didn't state their overarching qualitative design. Um, About 86 articles um, didn't state their overarching design. And then 14 different designs were stated, and the top two were case study, cited 35 times, and interpretivism, um, which was cited nine times. Mm And then in terms of who was publishing, there were 269 unique authors contributed to the 158 qualitative containing articles. Um, It was pretty evenly split among males and females. There were 131 females and 138 males. And then in terms of countries, the majority came from the U.S., 65%. And then the second highest authorship country was Australia, with Canada and the U.K. tied for third. Um, And then the main theories that have been used, um, 36 studies didn't cite a theory, which means 122 did. And then of those, occupational socialization theory was the most cited with 27 articles. And the second most used was constructivism, 15 articles. Uh, And third was the social ecological model. Um, In terms of methods that have been used to conduct the research, um, the average study used two different data collection methods. Um, qualitative specifically, Um, interviews were used 133 times. That was definitely the largest. And then within interviews, semi-structured interviewing was the most common. Um, Document analysis was the next used with 86 times. And reflective writing was the most common. 
and observations were the third most used, which was 79 times, and non-participatory observations were the most common. And then open-ended surveys came up 18 times. Um, Next, in terms of the target population being researched, 22% included participants from multiple categories and categories meaning like teachers, students, um, pre-service teachers, and faculty members. Um, Those are the main um, target population. Um, Most were teachers, 64 articles had the population being teachers. Um, K through 12 students were in 39 articles. Pre-service teachers were also 39, and then faculty members were in 22 articles. So, uh, but overall, to kind of tie that up, 36 articles were Um, looking at participants from multiple of these categories. Um, I would say the one thing that stands out to me within the population being researched was it was disappointing to see that participant ethnicity was only reported in 59 or 37% of those studies. And then lastly, um, the author's trustworthiness strategies. Many articles uh, did not reference trustworthiness. Uh, Most studies Um, 121 of them included multiple methods for trustworthiness and the most commonly cited were member checking and qualitative triangulation. They are both cited 88 times. Coming in at 85 times were peer debriefing, 54 times was analyst triangulation, 50 times was negative case analysis, and then 27 times was audit trail. And there's a lot of stuff that sticks out to me, like the idea that only 36 or 36 studies didn't uh, report a theory whatsoever, which is, you know, I think in quantitative research or mixed methods research, sometimes you can get away with not talking about theory, but qualitative research is so embedded in theory. And so it's interesting that they they are published. And we, and we saw this as well, and it was probably about a similar number that um, we saw in our latest after-school program review um, that didn't talk about it. But a lot of those were also quantitative papers. And I think the the K-12 to students as being uh, target population in 39 out of the 158 articles, like that just, that just shows that it's hard to get into uh, school districts and get... And that's how I interpret it, at least that, you know, it's it's much harder to get consent and assent from minors than it is to work with uh, with teachers, um, you know, and getting into school districts is hard and going to observe. And, you know, if you're doing videotape analysis or something like that or videotaping, audio taping interviews and, you know, those are just the extra steps that are that are super tough uh, to do. And, you know, yeah. So even even with the trustworthiness, you know the the top uh, the top way that people re- uh, or researchers presented trustworthiness was through member checking, and I and I understand that the the range of this was two thousand nine to twenty nineteen, but you know like the recent article I think it's like twenty seventeen Smith and McGannon article talked about like how member checking is not the not the gold standard like you should not do a member check there would be other ways that are much better to include your participants in qualitative research to add rigor, just sending, and I have done this for sure. Like I've sent the transcript over and said, can you look this over and let me know if I missed anything? And I say, trustworthiness, check. They had the opportunity to speak back to the data. 
but they never saw the way I analyzed mm -hmm. it, the way I presented their thoughts and how I perceived them. So I feel like there's there's a lot there and it's um, it, it's really, really interesting. Is there anything that you felt like out of those uh, descriptive categories that kind of stuck out to you? Yeah, I um, actually the one that you hit on first with the research on students, mm -hmm. and it ties back to what we talked about earlier in this this idea of like a publisher parish culture in academia. And you know, it's interesting that over the last decade and beyond, we're seeing uh, less mixed methods work, which we said you know it can be for multiple reasons, whether it's hard to fit into a paper, but it's also very time consuming. Yeah. You need a large range of skill sets or a diverse team. Yeah. Um, and then we're also seeing an increase in the theoretical work, which while theory is very hard and it takes a lot of thought, it doesn't involve us going out into a school and getting all those check boxes like you mentioned. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe there's a, a kind of a theme going on here that if we, if, if academia keeps putting a lot of pressure on researchers to publish to get things like tenure promotion, then, you know, are we going to continue to see less people going out into the schools because of how much time it takes to work with those students and, you know, not being able to meet those demands for publishing in order to hit the, the check boxes for tenure. Yeah, absolutely. And then figuring out when you're like, okay, if I'm going to gather if I'm going to do a really in-depth study that's a year or two years long and gather a lot of rich data, do I have enough to publish before my third year review? Do I have enough to publish before I go up for tenure if I'm starting it after my third year review? Will I get those papers in, in publication versus, it's, I mean, the papers count for the same amount in, in the eyes of administration usually. If you're, if you're publishing in JTPE, a quantitative or a qualitative paper, they don't always look at the nuance of like, that was a two-year study that got published in there, or that was a cross-sectional study, or even a research note. Like, it's it's pretty much the same um, credit-wise for tenure and promotion. So, um, yeah. Um, so, I'm yeah, wondering... Yeah, exactly. I think we need a new... I think we need a new system for mm -hmm. um, giving credit or like points towards research where a longitudinal study or a study that involves interviewing students, like maybe that gets a little more merit on the tenure track sheet if you're a teacher educator. Yeah, absolutely. So you categorize the qualitative research into six themes. So this is kind of like the second part of your findings. Can we go through each of those? Um, I mean, it would be great if you could kind of summarize the findings and share what were the, you know, your main suggestions regarding where research is going and how research can kind of uh, move the field forward. And so there are six themes and maybe we can just go one by one with those. Sure. Um, first, just as kind of like a blanket statement about this section, we, we talked about this a little bit earlier as well with you know how huge of an undertaking it is to try to dive into a, a qualitative component within this larger like descriptive tenure study. So. I kind of view this section of the study as a launch point for future research. Um, we wanted to capture the type of qualitative research being conducted over the past 10 years in hopes that it might shed light on topics being studied and in doing so prompt readers to identify gaps in what's being studied across the themes. Um, honestly, if we, were, if we were to do this study again in, in another 10 years, this is the area I'd like to rethink the most. 
Um, in my gut, I feel like there needs to be more practical application messages in the work that we do. I just don't know that I know the best way to synthesize those practical nuggets quite yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I'll, I'll dive into that first category, which is research on teachers. So this theme focused on in-service physical education teachers regarding their socialization, their beliefs, experiences working in the schools. And um, kind of the, I'll pull out the like, here's what we know and here's what I think we need to know more about just to synthesize these sections. So. Um, Here's what we know about research on teachers. Um, Physical education teachers learn best during professional development when it's hands-on. They are taught without being told exactly what to do in a prescriptive manner. Um, So they still have the autonomy to make decisions. And instruction, um, they also learn best when instruction meets the varying needs um, for levels of understanding and support. I think what we need to know more about is reshaping teaching to meet the needs of cultural competency, gender equity, marginalization, and physical literacy. Mm-hmm. So what about the research on students? Yeah, so this theme included studies focused on youth in physical education and activity settings, as well as students enrolled in college physical activity courses. Um, we know that student learning is most likely to occur in settings where teachers engage students through lessons that were meaningful to them and help students positively impact their own health behaviors. Um, I'd like to see more articles published that talk about the specific strategies teachers use to motivate and engage their students. And how do we understand the factors that influence students' self-concept? You know, there's a lot of Um, pieces within physical education, especially at the secondary levels that might, you know, put a student off before they even enter the gymnasium, before they even hear their teacher speak. Um, Just the idea of changing in a locker room is daunting. So Mm -hmm. I think we we need to understand more about those factors that influence their self-concept, that we can tailor physical education classes in a way that respects their self-concept and allows them to enjoy movement at all ages. And, and, and as you're saying these, I'm thinking this is good. This is a great section for for like doctoral students or early career researchers looking at like what's the next question. Well, if you go back to the section in your paper, you're gonna find a lot of things because you do a really good job like um, pushing the like what do we need to know more about. So um, speaking of, uh, what about the third uh, third part, which was the research on teaching. Yeah, Uh, and thank you for that, by the way. But uh, for research on teaching, um, we know administrator support leads to higher quality physical physical education teaching. Um, We know administrators should involve PE teachers in decisions about professional development and instructional delivery, um, and that pedagogical change may only be possible when teachers' values and pedagogical perspectives are aligned with the subject of their learning. Um, I think we need to know more about the written curriculum that teachers are implementing within their classes. Yeah, for sure. Uh, What about PEAT, like teacher education research? What did you find there? Yeah, Um, we know field experiences provide benefits to pre-service teachers. I think we need to learn more about how to provide pre-service teachers with field experiences for comprehensive school physical activity programs. And I think we need to know more about how PEAT programs and K-12 PE are evolving together. 
I think we need more collaboration between the two. So as PEAT students graduate and enter the schools, what are the gaps? What didn't we prepare them for? And can PEAT programs work alongside schools to help with professional development for teachers like we talked about in um, the research on teachers section? Mm -hmm. So almost like can the PEAT program continue to be the center for professional development in that in that local community for alumni or for just general teachers. I, I, I love that. And I love the, the gaps piece of like, you know, what do we still need to do? Because that was our conversation with a lot of our education colleagues just yesterday uh, about that same exact issue. So um, what about the fifth one? Yeah, have... I like I like the alumni. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no. And, and I got that. I, I just wanted to add. I Okay. I, I got that from um, somebody told me when I was back at Cal State Fulton that this was like the British model and I could be wrong, but they had these like professional development things that um, the alumni would come back to campus at um, the end of the semester to see like the um, see like the group of graduating seniors off um, and they would also be coming in for professional development at that point. And we, we did a little bit of that at Cal State Fullerton um, before I left that we'd have two professional development sessions that our teachers would provide. Um, at Mason, we do a lot more at, at the state conference. We provide that. We do some professional development, which again, in the last three years, it's just been so weird so we haven't done it as much but you know pre-covid um we did a lot of professional development for the local school districts so you know fairfax county or arlington or prince william county and we do a couple sessions for them um and i think that peat programs can become like a really good key uh area for for professional development for not just our alumni but just the teachers around in this area for sure yeah, I love I love that. I need to look more into this British model. Um, feel free to send me any articles you have. Well, I have uh, no articles. That, it's all just I think hearsay. that's a brilliant idea. <laughs> it's all just hearsay, so we'll we'll see. So your fifth one was we can, research. We can on... put it into a theoretical article. Exactly. We just have to find the I'm British sorry. person. I was going to say we can put it into. It. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. So the fifth one was research on policy, programming, and advocacy. Uh, what was that all about? So this theme included studies focused on how policies guide physical education and physical activity development, implementation, and refinement. Similar to what we were just talking about, a key factor of curricular success is the working relationship between universities and physical education programs. Um, as universities create or redefine policies, related to physical education, teacher education curricula. Um, and I'm blanking now, but I want to say, was it uh, Lawson that had an article um, published during my PhD? And, um, and he was a guest speaker over Zoom for one of my classes that mm -hmm. talked about this idea of PE and Pete evolving together. Yeah. And that was really just like this aha moment in my mind of like, yeah, how are we going to make sure that we evolve together and um yeah just a, a question that i think we need to unpack a little bit more absolutely and the last one the sixth theme is research on teacher educators so research on people like you and me so what what was that uh last one yeah. about 
Yeah, so um, some of the biggest things we, we noticed as a central theme was that we know doctoral education and the relationship someone has with their advisor plays a large role in their decision to pursue a career as a faculty member and become involved in professional organizations. And, and even just like you and I were talking about earlier, you know, our decisions of which studies to embark on um, in terms of even this project is influenced by our advisors. So that relationship is um, a key factor. Um, socialization also influences whether future teacher educators develop more conservative or innovative orientations towards physical education. And we know faculty priorities and program methods of teacher preparation do vary greatly. And personally, especially as a new faculty member, I'd like to see more work published on the methods teacher educators use alongside how it translates to pre-service teachers' abilities once they enter student teaching and then longitudinally throughout their career. Um, kind of going back to what we were talking about on research on teacher education, um, I had a meeting recently with an administrator and was just kind of picking their brain about like, you know, from your perspective, the, the ones responsible for the hiring and continual training of PE teachers at a large suburban district, I just asked her, you know, what is it that you see students are lacking, um, and, and not students, from my perspective, students, but our teachers that are graduating going into their schools, like mm -hmm. what do the schools see as a, a lacking skill? Like where can we kind of fill the gaps to make sure that we're preparing teachers to be ready for the schools that they're entering? Right. Yeah. So did they give you any like super good insight and because we we asked that question we we meet with the local um school district uh personnel right so the head of pe and all the local like six to eight school districts and we asked that question and and it's interesting to get the answers of what it is because it varies from different people you know and and i think we we do a good job I'm very biased of our own program, of course, but I think we do a really good job in in producing teachers. But I'm wondering, are there things that you've heard that uh, teachers are lacking in general that are coming in? Yeah, so their direct response was they would like teachers that are ready to train high school students specifically. So just talking about high school here. Mm -hmm. um, people with more background in group fitness instruction and personal training, mm. because this idea of helping students, helping K through 12 students, specifically high school students, maybe get some tangible skills that they can take into a career ready college program, or even just something that they can get a certification in and become um, and get a part-time job during high school or after high school um, would be really helpful. So group fitness instruction training and then personal training, but and again, I have a huge bias here because this is what my background is in. Mm -hmm. So maybe the administrator also knew my background. So yeah. I don't know if that played a role at all or not. Yeah. No, but I think that that's, I mean, the high schools around here, like the elective classes they have are personal fitness, yoga, strength training. Um, you know, so like it's it's definitely moving towards there in, in a lot of areas. And, and I don't know, like if... And you talked about Lawson's comment about evolving together, right? I think the schools are evolving and they are changing. And, and again, it might not be what all the researchers are saying that we should go to or they want to go to, but those are the things that are offered. For instance, like 
yoga at this local high school down the street, huge high school. Um, they have one class now. They're going to add a second one because it's 100% full. And we're not teaching students in our program to teach yoga, like at all. Like it doesn't come up anywhere. But if they would get a 200-hour yeah. yoga certification throughout their uh, you know, school, their undergraduate, they would be a good hire for that school. But we're not we're not doing that. And I think, you know, we have a strength and conditioning kind of class, like a pedagogy of strength and conditioning, but that's one semester. And compared to field and evasion games, uh, you know, net and target games, dance and rhythmic gymnastics kind of stuff, like that overweighs a lot of that. But also we do a K to twelve license. So if you don't know how to do games and activities, you're not going to do strength and conditioning for second graders. So it has to be balanced, but I'm not sure if it's balanced enough. And it takes a long time for a peak program to, to move, to, to adapt. Yeah, I 100% agree. And, I, and one of my personal, you know, big pie in the sky visions would be that, um, like the high school close to you that is seeing this growth in yoga classes. And, you know, what is high school's? then took it a step further and offered honors courses in physical education. And now after taking the prerequisite of yoga one or even yoga two, now what about offering like becoming a yoga instructor? Mm -hmm. And now it's just more rigorous, like teaching students about what they need to be an instructor um, so that maybe they can do that, you know, after they're of appropriate age and Mm -hmm. want to get a part-time job. But like we were talking about for a PE teacher to do that, they of course need to have really strong skills in those area. And with, and one of the things I love about PE is there's so many ways to move our bodies and it doesn't really matter which way we do it as long as we move. Um, so it, it's hard when you think about PE programs, you know, how do you specialize on certain movements? So another thing that bounces around in my head with all the other million things that bounce around in there is, you know, Will one day, will we need to have PE programs that specialize? Like, oh, I'm a graduating high school student and I really want to be strong in, in group fitness. So I want to seek out this university that's known yeah. for training their PE teachers that specialize in this. Or I really want to focus on sport development. So I want to seek out this program across this co- country. So, yeah. you know, just some, some, some food for thought. That is some food for that. So let me let me ask you one final question as we kind of wrap this up. Uh, you suggested that a future literature review could consider a paradigm or theory to position their study for readers. Can you expand on that as we kind of wrap it up? Yeah, like like we talked about earlier, we were pretty surprised by how many studies in our review did not include theory. Mm-hmm. And, you know, traditionally, theory has been a central component of the research plan for qualitative research. It grounds the work in context, and it helps to build more understanding within a specific topic. Uh, I'm a big hater on the, that's the way it's done, so that's what we will continue to do, school of thought. So I'm not saying that all research needs to adopt a theory. I just think that if scholars aren't going to align with a theory or aren't attempting to build new theory, they should at least be providing justification for why theory isn't used. Yeah, no, I I 100% agree. Um, 
thank you very much for coming on. Um, I, I loved reading it. I think it's a really solid example of a good review paper for those people who are doing review papers. Um, and I also really highly suggest doing this at the time that you Shelby did this and the time that I did this, um, because as we're going through this and you're reading, you're getting so much more information, but it also helped me become such a better reviewer because I coded hundreds of articles and I understood what things like people were missing. Like when I looked at, these are the things that you need to have. So like my template that starts with my paper starts with all those things that I learned. Trustworthiness and credibility is validity and reliability and uh, do they acknowledge IRB? Have you presented this and this? And so like, you, you know, I think even earlier you talked about the methods of people not saying if it was a case study or an inter interpretivist uh, type of study, they just didn't explain it. Like those are the things that now from your position doing this research, you'll never not add because you'll see glaringly like, oh, that's, you, you should have that. So I, I really appreciate you exactly. sharing. Yeah, exactly. And like you said, um, I'm not quite at the reviewer stage being so early in, in as a faculty member, but it, I can see how that will be helpful when I get to that stage. And for me right now, it's done leaps and bounds for my ability to write because just like you mentioned, I, I know which key components I should be hitting on and where they're placed within within the paper. So, yeah, I agree. It, it was such a empowering um, project for me to, to take on during my PhD. Yeah, awesome. Um, well, in full disclosure, I'm a, an associate editor for JTPEs, and I just heard you that you're not reviewing a lot for JTPE, so I'll be sending my qualitative articles <laughs> down, down to you. So <laughs> thanks, Shelby. Appreciate it. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. And so for those of you who want to read the full article, you can check out the full citation in the, in the notes section. And I also want to thank Alba Rodriguez for her help in producing these podcasts. Thanks. If you're still listening, you're probably really into health and physical education. So I'm going to use this opportunity to pitch our master's program to you if you don't have your master's degree yet. Um, our 100% online master's degree program we offer at George Mason is affordable. You can do it while teaching and it's high quality. Um, Mason was listed as one of the top 50 universities under 50 years old in the world. Our education department was ranked in the top 10 nationally for the online master's degree program in curriculum and instruction. The master's degree uh, revolves around your teaching. So you'll use assignments from the classes to immediately apply research and best practices to your classes. You'll be part of a tight-knit cohort of health and physical education professionals who are passionate about teaching. You're also going to get an opportunity to interact with students in other content areas. So if you're interested, you can email me, look me up on Twitter, or you can go on the hpewebsite.com under study with us and watch a video that I've made.